0: Thank you. It's just sitting here. I hope it's doing something. Anyhow. Um, I am instructed to remind all the mothers that there is a plant and some chocolate at the uh, door for all the mothers as well. So it's been a good day to be a mum here. Okay. We are continuing. What we have been looking what we started last week, which was, or last time I spoke, which was to look at the last week, what is commonly called Passion Week, the last week of our Lord's ministry, the last week he spent with his disciples here on earth, and to look in detail at what happened. Last time we spoke about that Sabbath meal on the Saturday in the house of Simon the leper, it's now in our time scale, Sunday morning. Hey, that fits well. It's Sunday morning, but you have to remember, this is the first day of the working week in Palestine. The weekend, so to speak, is over. Sunday morning was a day of work, not a day of rest. Jesus is staying a few kilometres from Jerusalem. Almost certainly at the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. So we need to understand where he was in relationship to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, The Temple Mount sits on a big, flat spot. It's big and flat because they flattened it. They made it flat. Got retaining walls to hold the dirt back and they built on top of it. The old, if you're standing on the Mount of Olives and looking that way, there's the Temple, the Temple Mount. To your left and down is the old city of David. Right over the back is the modern suburban city I'm saying modern in the first century the suburbs are over the back of the temple mount you're standing on the Mount of Olives in the middle of a huge olive grove the Mount of Olives is in fact taller than Jerusalem so you're looking down you're looking down into the Kidron Valley there's a a creek. You know, they call it a brook or a stream, but it, in Aussie terms, it's a creek because the thing only flows when it rains. Right? You know the, those creeks you get up in the country and and, it, and it, the, the water only flows to them for about six weeks of the year in the middle of winter? That sort of creek. There would have been a bridge over it, a little bridge probably, just a footbridge. The road... To Jericho, the Jericho Road came out the eastern gate, which is the one you're looking at, along the Kidron Valley, down to, over the bridge, up the Mount of Olives, and then headed south. Okay, so we've got the where we are. A few kilometres along that road to Jericho is Bethany. Now. I have perhaps unkindly described Bethany as a little bit like Sunbury, as in everybody knew where it was, but no one wanted to go there. (laughs) Perhaps a touch unkind, but the point is you could not see Bethany from Jerusalem. Okay? You can't see Bethany from Jerusalem. It's out of sight. Out of mind, perhaps. And it's there it all starts today, this morning. The weather, it would have been warmer than it is here. It's just getting into summer. The barley has started to yellow off. The wheat is still pretty green. It hasn't it hasn't got ready for near yet ready for harvest because the, the barley will be harvested early, harvested first. Not yet ready for harvest, but close. It's still relatively cool and comfortable. The blinding heat of summer hasn't hit yet. It's a nice season in Palestine. Jesus gets up Sunday morning. And you can still smell the odour of that ointment that was poured on him the night before and it starts they begin to walk up the far slope of the Mount of Olives Bethany is only a few kilometers from Jerusalem and they stop at a place called Bethphage The meaning of that will become interesting in about the next two or three lessons. So you can look it up yourself if you want to. But the meaning of the name Bethphage becomes interesting, possibly next message. So I'll leave it at that. Bethphage is a Sabbath journey from Jerusalem. What's a Sabbath journey? It is 2,000 cubits. What's a cubit? A cubit is about half a metre. So Bethphage is about a thousand metres. It's a kilometre from Jerusalem or from the temple. That was important to these people because it meant that if you if you were on your way to Jerusalem and it was the Sabbath day, If you stayed at Bethphage, you could walk to temple without breaking the law. That made Bethphage a good little stopping spot about a kilometre away from the the temple. It's near the top of the Mount of Olives. And we stop there And Jesus sends two of his disciples to get a donkey. He sends them into Bethphage to get a donkey. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 and 2, it's recorded that he sent them for two donkeys. For a donkey, a female donkey, and her colt. You know... Trust Matthew. Matthew, you've got to remember, was a tax collector. He was an accountant. He was a forensic accountant. He could look at your books and tell you how much you owed in an instant. So when it comes to numbers, Matthew's your man. He records there were two donkeys. No one else does. It's interesting that Matthew, in another passage, records there are two blind men healed, whereas everybody else only mentions one. I guess you can take, you know, the the man out of the accounting house, but you can't take the accounting house out out of the man. Matthew knew numbers. So he records there were two there. There was a female donkey and her colt. Don't get confused by what a donkey was. We see donkeys. Okay, who's been up close and personal to a donkey? Yeah? They're a pretty miserable sort of a creature. No. The Palestinian donkey, the uh, the Asian donkey was strong. It was tough and it was considerably bigger than the donkeys you see around in Australia. They were strong. Beasts of burden and quite easily capable of being ridden all day. Donkeys we got in Australia now, they're, they're mainly descended from English and, and um, uh, Irish donkeys, which are a lot smaller and a lot feebler. So get the, stop getting the idea this was some weak little animal. This was a donkey and her colt. And the interesting thing about the colt was he had not yet been broken in. Okay, and that will become important later on. So it's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, if you're looking for a reference. Matthew 21, 1 and 2. We get to verse 3. Verse 2 He says, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if any man shall say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send you. So they went. And it's recorded. In Mark, that the, the ass and the colt were tied in the street next to the door. Again, understand what we're looking at here. There is no footpath in Middle Eastern towns. There's no footpath. There's no nature strip. <coughs> it's the street, the house. You open the door of the house, you're you're straight away on the street. Okay? That's one of the things that that struck us when you, you walk along the street. There's no footpath. You walk on the street. And the donkeys were tied next to the door of the house. They walk up to them and they start to undo them. It's recorded... By, by one of the gospel writers that the people next door near there said what are you doing <coughs> Luke makes it even more specific he says the owner said what are you doing and they said the Lord has need of him and they said and take him isn't that interesting you know these These people do the equivalent to walking up to someone's car and getting in and proceeding to drive off. And when the owner says, what are you doing? They say, the Lord has need of it. And they say, then take it. I do not believe that this just happened. I believe personally that God was busy the night before. In the hearts and the minds and perhaps the dreams of the owners of those donkeys. Saying, tomorrow, my son needs your donkey and someone will come and get him. And so when the call went, the Lord hath need of him, the owner said, take him, take them both, take whatever you need. terrible would it have been for that man to have said no can't have it. My donkey belongs to me. I'll do what I like with it. What would it have mean to have missed out on the opportunity to serve God in this way? And God will sometime perhaps say to you of your son, of your daughter, of your husband, of your wife, the Lord hath need of him. What are you going to do? You're going to say, no, you can't have him. You can't have her. I want her at home. I want her in this country. I want her in, in her own society. I don't want her off in another country. Or you loose them and let them go. A donkey. Why a donkey? Why did the Lord choose a donkey? And why the colt? Why didn't he just ride the female donkey? Are we going to say that it just happened? Or are we going to say, let's have a look and see what the Lord is meaning here? Okay, let's have a look at what the Lord means about a donkey. Who rode donkeys? Abraham rode a donkey. Genesis chapter 22, verse 3. The judges rode donkeys. Judges 12, 14, there's a record that 70 judges, 40 sons and 30, grand, 30 grandsons of a judge, rode on donkeys. In Judges chapter 5, verse 10, it's recorded that not only did judges ride donkeys, but they rode white donkeys as a symbol of what they were doing. The donkey was ridden by a king. This is interesting. In 2 Samuel 18, verse 9, Absalom rode an ass or a mule when he was caught up by his hair while he was attempting to steal his father's kingdom. Hmm. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 26, Mephibosheth was riding an ass when he was demonstrating his claim to the kingdom of Saul. Oh, In 1 Kings chapter 1 verses 33 to 37, Solomon was put upon the royal ass to counter counter the claim of Adonijah to the throne of Israel. Very clearly, when a king rode in to be crowned, he didn't ride a horse, he rode an ass or a donkey, or perhaps a mule, which is counted as much the same thing. Interesting. A king rode an ass to be crowned. There's a story told of a one of the British uh, governors, who was going about doing his work in Palestine during the British Mandate and could not get any cooperation from the villagers. And one of his advisors says, said to him, it's because of the horse. And he says, because of the horse? And they said, they said, yes. When a king or a ruler rides a horse, he is riding in as a conqueror. And no one's... They said, if you ride in as on a donkey, the villagers will realise you come in peace for their betterment. Ah, there's a very important message here. If you, in, the, in, in the Middle East, if you come in on a donkey, you are coming in peace. But why a donkey? Why does that mean a donkey? You know, what, what's the connection between a donkey and peace? Well, some say that because a horse is a, an animal of war, perhaps. But I'll give you something else interesting about donkeys. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, it talks of one of the sons of Abraham and says he will be a wild man. Literally, it says he will be a wild donkey of a man. A wild donkey of a man. Oh. In Job chapter 39, verse 5 to 8, it speaks of how wild and untamable are the wild donkeys. How they will not submit to man's control. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 29, the lust of the wild ass becomes proverbial. Comparing the way Israel lusted after idols. It's interesting that in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, when Abraham took the ass with Isaac to sacrifice, they left the ass to one side when they went up to sacrifice you see asses are a symbol also of stubbornness of pride and of a refusal to obey are they not proverbial for stubbornness in first samuel chapter 9 Saul, when anointed to be king, was searching for the lost asses of his father. Yet when David was anointed to be king, he was tending the flock of his father. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 says that an ox knows who his owner is. But an ass Knows his owner's stall. Isn't that interesting? An ox you can train, say, I'm your boss, come to me. A donkey only knows who feeds him. That's all his interests are. The the feeding of his appetites. Jesus says that his sheep know his voice. So a sheep knows its master's voice. An ox knows who its master is. But a donkey only cares for its own appetites. And you start to see a pattern here? The king's job was to ride the ass, the donkey, to keep the problems and the passions of the people and his own under control. This, when we look now at the donkey which was brought before the Lord, was one which no man had ever ridden. Symbolic of the fact that no man is able to control properly their own passions and appetites. And yet the Lord was able to ride it, to control it. This is a symbol not just of him coming as the Prince of Peace, but of the one who is able to control and subdue all things unto himself. Oh, there is a great deal of symbolism in the donkey that was brought. Just in case anybody starts to uh, try and confuse you with How many donkeys and what did he ride on? Remember that the term ass is actually neuter. So when it says he rode upon an ass, it doesn't imply either male or female, but it does specifically say he rode upon the cult, even though two were brought to him. So the next thing they do is they spread their garments Upon them, upon him. Verse seven of of Matthew it says, "And they brought the ass and the colt and put upon them their clothes and set him thereon, and a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Now, they put like you can understand putting their coats or something on the donkey to make a bit of a saddle." That's that's a reasonable thing. But what's this thing about putting their garments down in front of him? Well, if you know, first of all, your English history, I would refer you to Sir Walter Raleigh, but we'll leave him aside. Try instead 2 Kings chapter 9. Let's have a look at this one. 2 Kings chapter 9. 2nd Kings chapter 9, verse 13. This is the description of the anointing of Jehu the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, as king. We'll look at ver- start at a couple of verses. Uh, start at verse 1. And Elisha the prophet called for one of the children of the prophets and said unto him, Gird up thy loins, take this box of ointment in thy hand, and go to Ramath-Gilead. And when thou comest thither, look out there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, And go in and make him arise from amongst his brethren and carry him into an inner chamber. Then take this box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Verse 6. And he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed thee king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. Down in verse 12. And they said, this is his people who are with him. It is false. Tell us now. And he said, thus and thus spake unto me, saying, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed thee king over Israel. Then they hasted, took every man his garment, put it under him at top of the stairs and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Okay, Again. This is symbolic of what you would do when a king is announced and anointed. You would take off your coat or your cloak. You would put it down for him to walk on. You would blow the trumpets and say, God save the king. This was the welcome of a king. Make no mistake about it. There there was no doubt in the people's mind what they were doing. They were welcoming the king of Israel. The next thing that happens in verse 8. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. Now, it's only John that mentions palm branches. And in fact, the word for branch used in the others is quite different to the word that's used in John. There's something interesting about this. And... Look, I want to mention it because it's just so intriguing, and it shows the detail of the Word of God. Because this is this is just so interesting to me. Okay, we go. Two. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 12. We'll start at verse 12, 12, 12. And the next day much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Okay? Is the word of God accurate to the actual word? Yes. Okay, is the word of God accurate to the letter? Right? Right? Look very carefully. They are the branches of palm trees. They are not the branches of palm trees. You see, there's an F missing. They took the branches of palm trees. Because if you go up to the road along which he went, The Jerusalem, the Jericho road that comes in through the Mount of Olives, there are no palm trees. Palm trees grow down south, down around Jericho. Lots of palm trees down there. But the palm trees, the branches are cut off, tied up in bundles and sent all over the place to be used as roofing. The branches, in Greek dendritum, which are spoken of in other places, are different to the branches which are spoken of here as belonging to palm trees. There were, I believe, bundles of palm branches there that people were using for roofing. And they opened up the bundles and waved the palms, palm branches. When it came to cutting down the branches... A different word is used and they were olive branches because he was going through the Mount of Olives. So yes, there were palm branches there, but there were no palm trees. For it's not recorded that they cut branches off the palm trees. They were the branches of the palm trees that had been shipped up to be used as roofing material. The word of God is accurate, not just to the word, to the letter. If there's an F missing, it means something. That is how accurate the word of God is. Because when I went there, I looked and I thought to myself, Palm Sunday, but there's no palm trees. There's olive trees, olive trees all over the place. And in fact, they were the branches which were cut down. But the branches that were waved were indeed palm branches. You know that, that expression, the palm? It's only used twice in all the New Testament. Only twice. Once here. And once. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Where it says, the redeemed shall stand before the Lamb with palms in their hands. Palm branches. Only mentioned here and in the book of Revelation. So Palm Sunday. I guess, look, I guess Olive Sunday just wouldn't sound as good, would it? Or Generalised Branches Sunday just doesn't, it doesn't really cut it, does it? So we'll stick with Palm Sunday. So then, have you got the idea of what's happening? There's a procession happening. There's Jesus on a donkey, on a, a, a probably a yearling or older colt, never been broken in before, riding it along with the colt's mother next to him. There's coats all over the animals. There's people waving branches. There's clothes being tossed in, in front of him for the donkey to ride on. And what are they calling out? What are they calling out? They are calling out Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What's Hosanna mean? Well, in one sense, it it means my granddaughter because that's her name, Hosanna. But it means a lot more than that. What does Hosanna mean? It's in fact not a call of celebration. Hosanna means save us, O Lord. Hmm. Save us, O Lord. Now here's something interesting. You think, oh yes, that's a call to God to save. Uh-uh. In 2 Samuel chapter 14 verse 2. And 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 26. Both times the phrase which would normally translated Hosanna is used for an earthly king. When someone would come before the king and say king save me. Usually it was the first words of An appeal to the king's justice. Yeah. Someone who was making their appeal to the king because they had been wronged, because they had been cheated, because someone had done something wrong to them, would come before the king and say, Hosanna, save me, O Lord, because this person has cheated me. Or because my son has been injured and they won't pay compensation. Or My husband has died and they won't make restitution. Save me, O king. That's what they were saying. We think of Hosanna being an expression of to God. No, they were saying it to Jesus as king. Save us, O king. Lest there be any doubt about the symbolism here. Jesus is coming as the Messiah, as the King, and everybody knew it. The symbolism here is unmistakable. Jesus is coming and offering Himself as the Messiah, as the King. But where does He go? Where does he head? Does he head to Herod's palace to throw him out? No. Does he head to Pontius Pilate's place to throw out the Roman governor? No. He goes to the temple. To the temple. Why? Why? John chapter 18. Why the temple? John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. Yeah. My kingdom is not of this world. That's why he went to the temple, not to the. The palace of Herod the king. He was not coming to set up an earthly kingdom. He was coming to set up a heavenly kingdom. Coming as the Messiah. The one who would save Israel from her sins. In Luke chapter 19. The Pharisees when they. When he gets to the temple. Sorry this is before they get to the temple. They're on their way up to the temple. And the Pharisees say in Luke chapter 19. Master rebuke your disciples for saying this. And he says. If they stopped calling out. The very rocks of the earth. Would give voice here. That the Messiah has come. He comes into the temple. Now, where in the te- when we say the temple, until you've seen it, or until you get a good look at the, the, what we're looking at, you miss the point. When someone says the temple, they don't just mean the little building. The building of the temple, while very magnificent, wasn't that big. The entire temple mount was referred to as the temple. When Jesus went and taught in the temple, it wasn't in the building where the sacrifices were done. It was in the open area around the temple, which was known by several names. And one of them was the court of the women. For we find the children here, Children did not run around unaccompanied by adults on temple. And children were with their mothers until, for a boy, until he turned 13, whereupon he would go and sit with his father. So these children are there with their mums. It's mother's Day. Isn't that nice? So the mothers and children are where Jesus is. And the children are calling out hosanna. Glory to God. Lord save us. And the priests say to him, stop them. Isn't this is wrong? And Jesus replies, haven't you ever read in Psalm chapter 8 verse 2, that in fact children give perfect praise? This is not wrong. This is absolutely correct and accurate. These children are calling out exactly the truth. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. I like kids in church. If it was good enough to have children in the temple when Jesus was there, it's good enough to have them in our churches. You do not get good children by sending them to church. You get good kids by taking them to church. With you, with them. Isn't it? And it's really amazing. In his last act of public worship, think about this. This is the last time Jesus is going to be going into open public worship. He will be disputing and arguing with people. He'll be discussing things later on. But this is the last time he's in an act of public worship. He chooses to spend it with mothers and children. In the court of the women and children. It says something about how important our kids are. What does he do? He stops now and he looks around. It says he looks around all the temple. Looks and looks and looks. Then he turns around and walks out and goes back to Bethany. Ooh. He comes. He receives the praise of of the children and then leaves because it is written that he came unto his own but his own received him not he came there to the to the nation of Israel as the Messiah and they did not accept him they did not receive him although there were a few there were some who cheered and shouted but remember It was also a mob a few days later that would shout crucify him. The nation did not accept him. The leaders did not accept him. The priests did not accept him. The scribes and the rulers did not accept him. He came unto his own but his own received him not. What then will he do? Well What he will do is he will come back again. Next time, he will not be riding a donkey as the Prince of Peace. Next time, there will not be crowds of children shouting Hosanna. Next time, there will not be palm leaves and branches. Next time, there will not be a procession up the Temple Mount from the, the Mount of Olives. Let me tell you what's going to happen next time Jesus comes as, and presents himself as king. It's going to look a little different. For in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth out the winepress press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath upon his vesture and upon his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's how he's coming back next time, not on a donkey, but upon a horse, to make war and to judge in righteousness and power. And he will smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. And there will be no choice about the matter. He came once on a donkey. Peaceful, under control. Willing to be accepted as the Prince of Peace. Next time he comes it will be upon a white horse and there will be no one to stand in his way. There will be no psalms next time. There will be no palm branches next time. The question is simply, which one will you accept? Which one will be your Lord? The one who comes on a donkey saying, Come unto me all ye that labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Will it be the one who you can call out and say blessed be the one who cometh in the name of the Lord. Will it be the Prince of Peace who offers you eternal rest or will you be facing him upon a white horse in judgment. That's the question. He's giving you an opportunity now. To make a choice. Which Jesus will you serve? Because most assuredly, if you do not accept the one upon the donkey, you will be forced to accept the one upon the white horse. For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Which one will it be? He made the entry. He gave the opportunity. He came unto his own and his own received him not. He's coming unto you now. Coming unto you saying, I'm here now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you will receive him now. Your sins will be forgiven. A home in heaven is assured. But if you if you refuse him now, if you deny him now, you will have to face him later. Eternally too late. When he comes in judgment. He gave Israel a choice. Israel refused to accept it. And as he left the city that day, he wept over it for he knew what was going to come to those who had refused to accept him. And a few years later, it did. Not one stone was left upon another. Because they knew not the day of their visitation. They understood not that this was the last chance. The nation of Israel refused to accept their king. He comes to you now, making that same offer. If you will cry, Hosanna, if you will cry, Save me, O Lord, He will this day, this moment, save you from your sin. If you refuse and say with the scribes and Pharisees, we will not have this man to reign over us, then one day you will be forced to bow the knee when he comes back on a white horse and not on a donkey. Thank you.